0: I think about this all the time. If I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened.
1: Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, Episode 16, Lies My Preacher Told Me, the Reverend Bill Gaddis. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department.
0: guy and this other guy frankie turner who was a friend of mine who has since died and had died you know had been dead at the time at the time of my trial so, you know he, he said that frankie said jamie killed somebody at the gas station or something along the line the state got that testimony in under the doctrine of you know an admission of guilt by silence you know they say well if somebody makes a a statement like that, your presence, you know, a, a normal person would deny it, you know, and, and, uh, you know and, that, and that's how they got it in, you know, and, and uh, two of the people were, were deceased, who he claimed was in the room, the other one, we don't even know who he was, and the other two people that he claimed was in there both said this never happened, so two of the people that supposedly Bill Gaddis said was in the room that day, are dead, and were dead at the time of my trial. The Mike dude says it never happened. Denny Hendrix says it never happened. Billy Hendrick says it never happened. I said it never happened. and I just, uh, we, we don't know exactly what or how Bill Gaddis got involved in the case. We have since learned through some family members. But he had some really big skeletons in his closet. I will tell you this: uh, I I wouldn't let him babysit my kids. But you know, he's just he's just another one. You know, and 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 you know, he was claiming that he was a reverend. You know, and, and I remember leaning over to my attorney, you know, and I was like, ask him what's the ninth the the, the ninth commandment. You know, if you're a reverend, I think we, if you claim to be a reverend, we had an, you know, we had a right to, you know, maybe test his, you know, his his truth and veracity a little bit of uh, whether he really was a reverend, you know, and I and I, I told him, you know, just just ask him what the ninth commandment is, and uh, <laughs> you know, Frank Pittsle wouldn't do it. I think he was probably uh, in his mind at the uh, at, at the uh, the riverboat uh, in Peoria playing. Uh, blackjack or shooting craps or something but you know i mean this guy you know he claimed to have known me since i was five years old and that he used to go to church with us and he, you know he, he'd known me all my life you know and, and thankfully frank did ask him after i sat at the table and just kept telling him to ask this guy these questions he asked him what was my my mom's name my my sister's name my dad's name and, and he got none of them right i think he said my my stepdad's name, my stepdad raised me. He said my stepdad's name was Don uh, and my mom's name was Mary uh, which is my stepdad's name was Ken and, and my mom's name was Sandy so it wasn't even close. We're not, you know, like I said, we're not, we're not sure where he came from, how he got involved, what was his motivation. All we know is he came out of nowhere. He just hopped up. Like we've been saying all along, you know, there's thousands of dollars worth of reward money missing. And like I said, we found out that there's some pretty significant skeletons in this guy's closet. It makes me wonder if maybe they were using that, you know, as as motivation to to get him to testify. But but that's pretty much it. You know, I mean, he's he's just another one in a long line of, uh, you know, witnesses who was allowed to get up on the stand and testify to something that was not cooperated by anything. This is what's what's keeping me from doing forensic testing, people like Bill Gaddis.
1: The Reverend Bill Gaddis popped up out of the blue. He claimed to be a reverend for the Pilgrim Holiness Church. He first comes on the scene August 31st, 1999. He and his wife Angie were interviewed in Michigan at a truck stop. And for some odd reason, they brought a boatload of people to assist with that interview. Present during this interview is myself, Detective Dan Katz, Detective Larry Shepard,
2: Tina Griffin, the Assistant State's Attorney. Also is William and his wife, Angela. Bill, back in uh, March 31st, 1991, a crime occurred in Bloomington, Illinois at the Clark gas station on Empire Street where the gas station was robbed and a person was killed by the name of William Little. Do you have any information about that case?
3: Um, I walked into an apartment house on the corner of Lee and Market Street. I believe the person who rented that apartment was Dennis Hendricks. I was looking for my younger brother. I had just brought my younger brother home. There's, um, lots of people in the front room, mostly women or girls. And I walked back to the back bedroom. I believe there's only one bedroom in that apartment. Um, when I walked in, it looked like everybody in the room had been crying or... and was in a real solemn attitude at that time. And I asked who died. And, um... There was silence for a few seconds, and Frank Turner, who was laying on the bed, said that Jamie had either shot a boy at a gas station or her shot that boy at the gas station. Um, I looked at Jamie. Jamie looked at me, and uh, another period of silence. Soon
2: after that, could you tell us who was in that room when that comment was made?
3: Mm. Um, starting from the left, going around the room, um, Jamie was Jamie Snow, was standing on the wall, and beside him was a kid, they, a white kid, they called Nigger Mike. Beside him was either Dennis Hendricks or Todd. There was only two Hendricks boys. It was either Todd or Bobby. Um, Whoever wasn't standing was sitting on a dresser that was right beside there. Um, From there in the corner was another kid, um, an Italian kid. I believe his name is Mike also. There's a window and then the bed there. Frank Turner's laying on the bed. Dave Shepperson is sitting at the foot of the bed with his head in his hands and myself.
2: Will you tell me what everybody was doing in there?
3: Um, most of them were crying and just sitting when I walked in or standing just just there.
2: Can you tell me what Jamie Snow was wearing that night? Yes, I can.
3: I can remember exactly. He was wearing a pair of blue jean, shorts, the long shorts that go to your knees, a white t-shirt, and a white Miami Dolphin leather hat.
2: Was Jamie crying at that time?
3: Yes, he he was still crying.
2: Was Dennis Hendricks crying at that time?
3: Dennis Hendricks was crying.
2: And this uh, individually called uh, Mike, uh, Nigger Mike, I guess, What was, was he crying?
3: I can't remember if he was crying or just standing there.
2: Uh, Frank Turner and, and uh, Dave? Frank was crying. I don't
3: remember if Dave was crying, but I know that Dave was...
2: Kind of like just blank. Was the uh, door, was there a door to that room? Yes, it was. Was that door open or closed when you came up to the door?
3: It was closed when I came to the door.
2: When you opened it, uh, did you startle anybody inside or did they expect you or did they stop talking when you walked in?
3: There was, when I walked in, there was no talking
2: at all. this time when you when you heard this conversation, did Jamie deny killing uh, this boy or this kid at the gas station?
3: No. He looked me right in the eyes and I looked him in the eyes and we just looked at each other for a few minutes and then he put his head back down.
2: And then you left?
3: After a few minutes, yeah.
2: Can you tell me when date, month, year this conversation took place and this comment was made in the apartment house?
3: It would have been at the very end of March or the very first part of May. And it was raining that night, I do remember that.
2: So it was between the end of March and the first part of May?
3: first part of May.
2: This incident occurred on March 31st, 1991, approximately 8, 8 8.15 p.m., which was Easter Sunday. In regards to Easter Sunday,
4: 8.15
2: in the evening, does that help you pinpoint whether or not you had heard about this case before you went over there that night? Is that the first time you ever heard about the case occurring?
3: i believe that was the first i had heard anything about it and i would have been there between nine between nine and ten p.m on the night that i was there no later than
2: 10. what was your relationship with all these guys in that room
3: i guess i would have been their self-appointed leader
2: Can you uh, describe to me this uh, guy that they nicknamed Nigger Mike, why did they nickname him and, and can you describe him to me?
4: He's a tall
3: white guy, skinny, 6 foot 1, 6 foot 2 maybe. I believe he was married to a, a black lady.
2: How old was, was Mike?
3: Oh, at that time. At that time. Early twenties, maybe twenty.
2: So today, eight years later, he'd be maybe anywhere from twenty-eight to thirty years of age.
3: Yeah. Yes, sir.
2: And what did he drive back then?
3: A the big old Cadillac.
2: You remember the color? I believe it was a green in color. This is Detective Shepard. When.
3: When you talked, uh, when that conversation occurred, when you saw Jamie, uh, can you try to narrow that down a little bit further of when, did the, uh, we had talked earlier before we started taping, you talked about uh, him taking off and going to uh, Florida and Missouri. Uh, was it prior to him taking off when you had the conversation? Prior means before. Did you talk, did you walk in the room and, and talking, uh, whenever I was crying, was that before he took off and went to Florida and Missouri? That was before he took off. Did you, was was Garen present there? I don't think Garen was there, I really don't. I don't remember him being there. Either I was looking for him or I had brought him home, but I can't remember him being in the room. Was Travis there? No, I believe my brother Travis was in a penitentiary at the time.
4: Uh, uh, did you and Darren, did you Garen ever discuss this?
3: I believe at least a couple of times.
4: About being at the party? About being there and having this conversation with Jim Snow?
3: About being there and, and about all the stuff that was said, yes. Because he lived also in that apartment. He was staying there.
2: So he heard after. So did Garen ever tell you that Jamie told him that he had done this? I think Jamie left.
3: I think Jamie left real soon after that.
2: Frank Turner. Yes. uh, He's deceased, is that correct? Yes. And uh, Dave. Shepperson is also deceased. He's also see. So two of those guys that were in that room are no longer... Right. Okay, well, let me ask you, Angela, you're uh, Bill's wife. Well, first let me ask Bill this question. When you left that apartment house that night, Danny Henderson's apartment, after hearing what had occurred, where did you go?
3: I went mean, directly home.
2: And when you got home, did you say anything about what you just heard? Yes I did. And who did you tell? I told nobody. And what did you tell her?
3: I told her exactly what had happened, what I had what what was said, what was going on, who was there, some of the people she didn't know because they weren't part of the group. Everybody who is part of the group, she knew. But there was some guys like Nigger Mike and the other Mike kid that um, she doesn't know, and I don't know that she knows Jamie Snow, you know, personally.
2: Thank you. Angela, I you sat here and listened to to this uh, our conversation. Do you remember the night that your husband Bill came home and, and told you about? what he just heard at the apartment house?
0: I remember him coming home and telling me. I couldn't tell you the exact night.
2: And do you remember roughly what he told you?
0: Just basically that um, they were all there in the apartment and that they were talking about um, the murder and that Jamie. they said Jamie Snow had committed it.
2: As far as between what date and what date, could you help me with that?
0: Um, I would say between the end of March and the second week of May for sure because that's when we were in the middle of moving to Colfax and that's when I can narrow it down I do know it was raining at night Um, I mean that's how I I time frame things by different dates when we moved or started a job and that's how I time framed it for myself
2: Okay, we will stop the tape
3: at Eight. Could I say one more thing? Oh, yes, sure. Um, the reason that we hadn't said anything before is because we were told somebody else told this story. So, and I would like that said.
2: And if this story had not been told before, then you would have came forward and told us what you thought it had already been told.
1: Exactly. Were you and Angela married at that time? Yes, sir. Okay. Eight days after that interview was conducted, Reverend Gaddis testified at the grand jury. Bill Gaddis confirmed he was a licensed minister and affiliated with the Pilgrim Holiness Church on East Street in Bloomington. He said he had known Jamie Snow since they were kids as their fathers raced stock cars together. He went on to tell the same story, that his brother Garin lived with Denny Hendricks and one night he went walking through their apartment looking for Garin. He said there were many women in the front room, and he walked through the kitchen, down the hallway, to the bedroom, and opened the door. He said that Jamie Snow was on the wall, wearing a pair of blue jean cut-off shorts, a white t-shirt, and a white Miami Dolphins baseball cap. He said there was also a man named Mike, Denny Hendricks, and one of Denny's brothers. Another man, his brother Frankie stretched across the bed laying down, and Dave Shepperson, at the foot of the bed. He said that Jamie was heavily crying, and Denny and his brother Frankie were crying as well. He asked who died, and Frankie said that Jamie had shot a kid at the gas station. The Reverend said he and Jamie looked at each other, and he looked around the room, then backed out, went down the hallway, and left. He said it was raining that night, and he drove home disgusted and told his wife. The Reverend went on to testify, that he was told that Denny Hendricks tried to collect the reward money by telling this story. But police said it wasn't enough information or that the story wasn't credible and that the Reverend was testifying today because a couple of months ago he was telling this story to someone and they told on him and police had contacted him. When asked about Jamie by the grand jury, the Reverend Gaddis said the following. Question. What kind of person is he? Going back to Jamie Snow, going back to that time. Answer, he's a thug. He's a street guy, just like me. I mean, I don't put myself anywhere above or below where he was at the time, and I was at that time. He's a hood, the same as me. Question, was he a fighter? Answer, yeah, all them boys is fighters. You don't grow up on the west side and come out a sissy. That's for sure, so. Question. After you overheard that conversation, and you said you walked down the hall, was there any threats? Or any... How did they let you go without? Answer. The whole bunch couldn't whoop me all of them together. One thing I know so much on them guys, that they was glad to let me walk when I decided to walk away. They were glad to let me walk. And another thing is, I ain't afraid of none of them. Mike Higgins who Reverend Gaddis testified was called Nigger Mike, testified he has never been known by that name, and further, that he did not know Denny Hendricks, Bobby Hendricks, Todd Hendricks, Billy Hendricks, Frankie Turner, Dave Shepperson, or Reverend Gaddis, but that he may have gone to high school with Jamie Snow, but doesn't remember him, and also that he is not familiar with the apartment on Lee and Market and that he learned about the Clark murder from the Panagraph newspaper. Denny Hendricks testified that he didn't know Mike Higgins, that his apartment was a three-bedroom, and that the incident Reverend Gaddis was talking about never happened, and that he can't remember an incident where he or his friends were sitting around crying. Billy and Todd Hendricks also went on to dispute the testimony. In fact, not one person... Corroborated the Reverend Gaddis's story. Not even his wife Angie, who had previously corroborated the story during Reverend Gaddis's original testimony, in May of 2000, detectives Katz and Barkus interviewed Daryl Gaddis, Reverend Bill Gaddis's brother, because he was put on the defense witness list for Susan Claycomb's trial to talk about the credibility of Reverend Gaddis.
4: Your brother back in the 80s was a liar. Yes, he, he was a habitual liar. Yeah.
2: So you don't know from the late 80s or the early 90s whether he's still a liar or yeah. whether he has changed?
4: Well, he's running as a liar, calling himself Reverend Bill Gattis. That's a lie, you know. He's a liar and he's not a reverend. He's never been ordained, you know. He's to buy a piece of paper out of a star magazine in the back. He ordered his diploma and that's how he called himself Reverend Bill Gattis. So in that fact, he's a liar. So you would consider that a lie? Most definitely. Anything else
2: that he's told you in the last 10 years that's a lie?
4: Well, I, just simple things, you know, over 10, 12 years ago when, you know, he used to just lie to make up stuff. Especially saying he knows about this case firsthand because there's no way he can. If I didn't hear about it, no way he could have. It was my clique of people, and if it was being said, I would have heard it. And now he's obviously lying, you know, on this case, so...
2: So you don't think you he heard anything about this case? I, well
4: I, well. I, no, right. I don't think he's heard anything about it, and he's lying by saying he has. And the reason you don't think he's heard anything
2: is because you've not heard anything. Correct. Even though you have separated from this crowd in 1990... Right you just seen him and said hi once in a while on the street. Right.
4: But Bill Gaddis has separated from him before that period of time. You know, he's separated from him a long time before I did, you know. So, you know, I, if it was being said and it was around, you know, that was my type of people, I would have heard about it.
1: Despite absolutely no corroboration of the story, on January 2nd, 2001... Reverend Gaddis, took the stand at Jamie's trial. He testified to the same story with a couple of embellishments. This time, he stated that when he went to the room, he knocked on the door and said, if you don't open it, I'll kick it in. Also, when he testified about what Jamie was wearing, he stated that Jamie had on a white baseball cap, but it was on backwards, so that means that he would have never seen a Miami Dolphins logo. Reverend Gaddis admitted that he was a licensed preacher for the Pilgrim Holiness Church but was still working on his ordination. He went on to say that the church was on East Street but somehow he couldn't remember the street address. He claims that when he was nine years old that Jamie's mother took him to church but he can't remember Jamie's mother's name. He also admits that he knew about the $5,000 reward money before he spoke to authorities. Reverend Gaddis admits that he or his wife Angie never called the police with their knowledge of the crime and that he was contacted by Dan Katz in 1999 after he told someone else and they reported it and prior he told no one else but his wife. Recall, he stated in the grand jury that he and Garen had spoken about it a few times. Lastly, there is no mention of it raining the night that Reverend Gaddis allegedly went to Denny's house in the trial testimony, even though it was mentioned by both Reverend Gaddis and his wife Angie in their interview, and again in the grand jury testimony. They were adamant about that point, but probably because the state figured out it could be proven that it did not rain that night. In fact, it did not rain the week before or after the alleged incident. As a result, they decided to omit those statements altogether. Denny Hendricks also testified for the defense and was adamant that the encounter never took place and that Reverend Bill was never welcome at his home. He also testified that he never heard Frank Turner say that Jamie Snow shot Bill Little and that he definitely would have remembered that. Denny's brother, Bill Hendricks, also testified that Reverend Gaddis was never there when he was there and that he had spoken to Gaddis's brother, Daryl, Garen, and Frank Turner, who all said that Reverend Gaddis had a bad reputation for telling the truth. Garen Bradford, also known as Frank Roberts, was the last to testify. Garin states that he and his sister were recently talking about Bill Gaddis's bad reputation for honesty, and about a year prior, his brother, his sister, and a court reporter were also discussing his bad reputation for honesty. Somewhat recently, we had the chance to connect with Garin, and he revealed information that has not been revealed prior to this date. This is edited for clarity. After I was coming off that seven-year bid in Lincoln in 1999, two detectives came up and paid me a visit, talking about how I needed to be on their team, and that I didn't want to have to see behind bars ever again and that it was in my best interest to be on their team. I told them that I don't believe Jamie Snow ever did that crime. They just didn't look fucking hard enough. And besides that, they didn't need to come up threatening me before I got out of prison with some bullshit talking about being on their team and blah, blah, blah. I can't really remember the rest, but they were basically threatening me. There was one big, dumb, tall detective who kept coming by my house on Clayton Street all the time wanting me to go with him so they could talk to me. And when I finally did, they put me in a room with mirror glass boots for about a half an hour without talking to me. I beat on the window and told them I was tired of fucking sitting there while they were looking at me and that they needed to come in and talk to me. The door opened a few minutes later and I told them that Jamie wasn't no killer. Jamie didn't really even like to fight and the cops telling me as they were coming to my house to get me to go down there, that the little family had $10,000. And this detective saw my kids at the house and asked, what would that $10,000 do for my kids? And did I not think that $10,000 would do something for my kids? Look how they're living, he said, and that pissed me the fuck off. For one, not everybody made a fucking fortune being a crooked-ass cop. And two, that sounded like he was trying to bribe me to testify. Jamie is my friend. And Jamie did not commit that murder. And Bloomington should be ashamed of themselves for trying to bribe me with $10,000 from the Bill Little family just to get a conviction. Just to get one more person to say he did it. And then threaten me when I was getting out of a seven-year prison term to be on their team or else. I'm sure whoever those two detectives were that went to Lincoln Correctional Center in 2000 to see me were on a docket somewhere. They had to be on paper somewhere. And I swear till the day I die that Jamie Snow didn't do it. So, just like the others, they threatened Garen and also told Garen that he needed to be on their team and waived a carrot of $10,000 from Bill Little's family. But Garen went on to talk about Reverend Gaddis and Angie. He stated that he was much younger than Reverend Gaddis and that he was sent to a boy's home But the good Reverend Gaddis and Angie gained temporary custody of him and were receiving a check from DCFS to do so. Apparently, Angie told Garen that she was going to put the money away for Garen, but never did. He said he and the other kids lived in squalor, and it was a terrible place to live. Garen said there was dog feces, soda cans, and other trash everywhere. And if the kids didn't clean up after everything, Angie would smack them in the head with shoes and shit, and that's just the way it was. Garen went on to say that Reverend Gaddis and Angie also tried to get custody of his own daughters when he and his daughter's mother were having trouble. He said his mother, brother, and sister showed up and testified that the Reverend Gaddis had molested his brother and his sister, and they did that because they didn't want their nieces to go through what they went through. Garen said after they testified that both Reverend Gaddis and Angie rescinded their petition for custody and left the courtroom abruptly. He said that Reverend Gaddis and Angie put on a real good show for everybody and the church, but when at home, it was a whole different story. When asked about the incident at Denny Hendricks' house, Garin stated, Nothing like that ever happened. Nothing. Me and Billy, meaning Reverend Gaddis, didn't even talk at the time. Really, we was having trouble at work. We had crystal polishing detail shop. I got the money for my brother Daryl from a girl I was living with to buy into the company, and I moved in with Denny and Frankie Turner, and we partied a lot, drinking a lot of beer, and Billy was mad because I moved in with Denny Hendricks. And that's about when he was trying to really get into this Christian stuff. But he was still smoking weed and doing his thing. But he thought I was using needles and stuff, which I wasn't. But no conversation like that ever happened. Billy never even stepped foot in that house. And that's guaranteed, because Denny and Billy did not get along. And it would have been a fight, and Billy knew it, so he didn't come around. When asked if he was working with Reverend Gaddis at the time and if he ever discussed the incident concerning Jamie with Garen, he stated, No, I quit. I was working there. I wrecked my brother Daryl's car and I got pulled over in my car and went to jail. I never got back out. There is no chance that I discussed anything with Billy. Billy was a liar, a chronic storyteller, if he had a dollar, he'd tell you it was a million. Tam, Jamie says he never even knew Bill Gaddis, and that he had never seen him before in his life until the day he came to testify. Can you point out some of the things that back Jamie up?
5: Gaddis knew nothing about Jamie's he said he knew them well when they were kids, but he can't remember his mother or sister's names. And he even admits at trial that he never actually spent any time with Jamie alone, ever. He's inconsistent on when he heard the accusations in the apartment. He first said it was possibly between the night of the crime on March 31st through the middle of May. But actual trial, he pins it to Easter Sunday or the next night. His wife is the only person who can corroborate him, sort of. She's not really corroborating him, but notice they didn't use her in trial. Recall from the interview, she was adamant that it was raining that night because they were moving. It was mentioned several times. We've looked that up and it did not rain that night, nor did it rain any that entire week. Several people Gaddis named as being present at the time of the scenario testified, it did not happen. Gaddis wasn't welcome at the apartment and there's a couple of them that have
1: passed away. There is some talk of Jamie and his friends being in a gang. The Northsider Prison Gang. Was Jamie ever actually in a gang?
5: No, I mean we've that we've gone over that over and over and over and vetted that in truth and justice and you know, Jamie was not a North Sider. He was friends with some of them, you know, he knew them. Um, because they knew each other when they were kids, but that's the extent of his relationship with the Northsiders.
1: Daryl Gaddis was Bill Gaddis's brother. And he told the Bloomington Police Department that Bill was a complete liar. He was supposed to testify for Susan, but never made it to either trial. Can you tell us about Daryl? Has he been interviewed by Jamie's team since the conviction?
5: He hasn't been interviewed that I'm aware of, but he didn't testify. So there's, there's nothing more than what we have on the tape. Now, had he testified to something different and we later discovered this tape, that would be a different story. He would definitely be uh, a target for us to interview
1: you spoke to Denny Hendrix recently about this case. What did he have to say about Bill Gaddis?
5: Denny and several others that knew him, even his family members, talked about Bill Gaddis being a liar. Denny was adamant that Gaddis wasn't allowed in his house and certainly didn't hang out with him. Something that really struck me from Gaddis's interview was when he was asked about the relationship between these guys and Gaddis, and Gaddis said said he was their self appointed leader. And if you know these guys, you know that
1: how ridiculous that is. I mean, why did Bill Gaddis do this? What are some of the leads on this guy and his possible motives?
5: I don't know. He just kind of popped up out of the blue. Jamie did not know him. The only things that we can think of are reward money
1: or possibly getting out of some type of trouble. Leslie, what happened when Bill Gaddis first testified at the grand jury?
6: Bill Gaddis came off as a real jerk in both of his testimonies. He started it with the grand jury, and he had a literal holier-than-thou attitude. He was very judgmental, and he was trying to talk himself up, but he also cared a lot about coming off as a tough guy. So basically, he wanted to be better than Jamie in every aspect, and it was outrageous. So here's an example of him trying to be a preacher who also kicked ass. Question. After you overheard that conversation and you said you walked down the hall, was there any threats or any, how did they let you go without? That whole bunch couldn't whoop me, all of them together. One thing I know so much on them guys was that they was glad to let me walk when I decided to walk away. They were glad to let me walk. And another thing is I ain't afraid of none of them. So you see, he craves credibility. But I don't think that makes him very credible in the way he hopes. Another credibility issue was that he told BPD that he was this group's self-appointed leader or something, like some kind of gang boss. That was their relationship. But then he tells the grand jury just eight days later that he first needs to let everyone know that he separated from all those people months before in October of the prior year before the crime. And that night he drove home disgusted and told his wife right away. So here he's an ex-gang leader with just six months on the straight and narrow, and he can even kick seven men's asses all at once, and that makes him so credible. It really seems like a grand tale, like someone with motivation to brag and be a hero, right? So by this point, when he's on the stand with the grand jury, he somehow makes himself this authority over all of the witnesses, dead and alive, all the ones he placed in the room that night. He gets to speak for all seven even the ones who are there on that same day saying it never happened. He says that he's a, quote, think rat now, and none of the others are rats. They would rather do time instead of tell on each other, including his brother, who had the apartment. And then conveniently, the two he said were sitting on the bed are both now dead, including his family member, who is the one that supposedly accused Jamie of the murder. It doesn't matter that Mike Higgins testified later that same day that he wasn't in that room and doesn't even know any of them, or that Denny Hendricks testified that he wasn't in there crying and doesn't remember that scenario at all, or that another man was supposedly in there too, and he can't even give that name. Gaddis just gets away with it simply because he claims to be the reformed reverend of a quote, great little church. So he is believed over the others, and Jamie is indicted.
1: So then what happened at the actual trial? Did Gaddis stick to his story?
6: At Jamie's trial, Gaddis tells the exact same story, except for this time there's one big difference. He says he can't remember if Jamie looked at him or not after Frank said he shot the kid at the gas station. He said Jamie was looking down. This is the first time he can't remember, and that's a big deal. So we go from making eye contact and not denying the accusation, like a nonverbal confession from Jamie to all of a sudden no eye contact at all. So basically, what is he testifying to? That someone accused Jamie and Jamie did not even acknowledge it? Is he backtracking now because he feels bad or because he can't remember his lie? He also said twice prior that Jamie had on a white leather Miami Dolphins baseball cap while he was in that room. But now he says he had it on backwards. So how could he have seen the logo before? So it's very bizarre that he insisted on all those little details about what Jamie was wearing eight years ago. But then at trial, he changes that one thing. So again, did he forget his lie? So when Frank Pitzel cross-examines him, it gets really good. Gaddis has to admit that he is not ordained yet. He is only licensed and cannot even perform weddings. He is actually a preacher. So of course Pitzel is going to expose that. And it got a lot worse. When asked when he preached in Bloomington, Gaddis can't remember the street address of his own church and claims it's because he now lives at a state, so he doesn't preach there anymore, but he won't even tell what state he lives in now. The judge actually allows that for him to not admit where he lives and preaches out of for privacy reasons. Gaddis is then relentlessly quizzed on how he knows Jamie, and he claims he knows him because Jamie's mother took him to church as a child, but he can't remember her name, And he gives the excuse that Jamie went to live with his father, so it wasn't many times. Then he can't remember how long Jamie even lived with his mother for. He's then quizzed back and forth over and over again about how good of friends he was with Jamie and the Hendricks brothers. And he eventually relents and admits that he was only acquaintances with Jamie, but still insists that he was close with the Hendricks. Pitzel keeps going and starts asking him about the Bible and the Ten Commandments. He gets Gaddis to admit that although he left that apartment thinking Jamie was a murderer and broke one of the commandments, he still never told authorities. And then when asked about the reward money, he has to admit that he did know about it. He tries to skirt it, but Pitzel grills him really hard, forcing him to admit he knew about the reward money before talking to the police, and it was so hard that he had to ask for a glass of water. He then got into an argument with Pitzel about if he really knows who shot Bill Little, and he keeps saying Jamie Snow did it. But eventually he has to admit that he has no actual personal knowledge of that. And next, in a classic Pitzel fashion, he asks Gaddis a surprise question that's very random and off topic, and Pitzel suddenly spouts out, what is Jamie's stepdad's name? And Gaddis says he thinks it's Bill. So Pitzel says, oh, well, he's here in this courtroom today, so why don't you identify him? but that's immediately objected to and he doesn't have to, which is good for him because I don't think that he could. Tina Griffin then redirects and she asks him if it is actually his responsibility to hold people accountable for their wrongdoings in regards to Pitzel making him admit that he never reported anything to the authorities. Gaddis responds by saying that it's his job to make sure their soul is right and it doesn't matter if he gets the death sentence or whatever God works out the judgment in those things. So that's an awful thing for him to say in front of the jury. And I'm really surprised there was no objection since this wasn't a death penalty case anymore. She simply asked him if it was his job to report crimes as a preacher. But he responded in a way to imply that Jamie did something to get the death penalty. And that is the kind of holier than thou stuff I was saying. He is literally saying, well, I didn't tell the truth about a murder, but this guy is worse. He could get the death penalty. So next, she wants him to clarify that the detective contacted him first in 1999, and then he told, and he does. But we know his brother had contact with authorities in 1996, so is that a lie that didn't make it to trial? Was there other contact sometime else? Griffin ends with asking if he told his wife, as if telling his wife makes it less bad in some way, and he confirms that he did. But then Pitzel jumps right back in for his last question and exclaims, "So she called the police then?" And he says, "No." And then that's it. He's excused from the stand. And I could see where Frank was going with pointing out all of Gaddis's weaknesses, but for some reason we don't know, or maybe just can't understand, why Gaddis really wanted to judge Jamie and be an authority on the stand, like he had a dog in this fight. But he wasn't an informant that sat on the fence and played the system. He was really digging into it. And I think Pitzel could have been more effective if he asked him who ever saw him hanging out with Jamie or his family in any situation, who was still alive. And also, if he asked him like Jamie always wanted, what is the ninth commandment and what is the punishment for someone who breaks it?
1: A few good people took the stand days after Gaddis to refute his testimony. What did they say?
6: Well, Denny Hendricks took the stand first and refuted the most. Since it was his apartment, he vehemently denied that Bill Gaddis was ever in there when he was and that he never heard Frank Turner or anyone else state that Jamie killed the clerk at the gas station. He said, in fact, if he did, he would have been testifying for the prosecution. He said he was never in a room crying like that either. His brother, Billy Hendricks, testified next. He was a very good friend with Jamie, and he said that Bill Gaddis was never over there while he was either, and he was there very often. He testified that several people in Gaddis's family talked to him about what a bad reputation he had for lying. And then Gaddis's own brother took the stand next, Garen Bradford, the one that lived there with Denny, and he said the same. That his brother was a bad liar and his sister and other brother were recently discussing his bad reputation. The prosecution tried really hard to decredit these witnesses by saying that Denny previously said he didn't recall the scenario, not that it didn't happen. That Billy was best friends with Jamie and had visited him nine times in the past year or so. And then they made Garen recite all of his violent convictions. It didn't really work, though, in my opinion, because all three of these people insisted those things never happened, and Bill Gaddis is a liar. And let's not forget that Mike Higgins testified against him at the grand jury, and his other brother, Daryl, told detectives about his reputation for lying. So in total, that's five people, six if you include Jamie, who went on the record to say this guy was lying. And it makes me wonder what exactly the jury believed about his testimony.
1: I don't recall any other witnesses having six people testify to refute what they said. It seems like there's a lot of people that were willing to discredit this guy.
6: Everybody in the room discredited him except for the two that are dead and the one guy who he couldn't even remember his name. and We probably made up. So everybody else, if you go around the room and count all those people who are sitting in there, they all said it didn't happen and I wasn't there. And, you know, the other thing is he starts saying that that Mike Higgins guy had this really racist derogatory nickname and everybody says that's not true. Um, Mike is like, you know, what the hell? Nobody ever called me that to my face. And Denny says the same thing. No, I don't know anybody by that. He's even going off a list of all the mics that he knows and he can't even come up with that guy. So, um, that that was pretty amazing too. And it just seems like it didn't matter. You could have everybody in that room saying it didn't happen. And then other witnesses say they never heard anything about that out of the two men's mouths who are now dead. And that had no weight at all, it seems like.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, he just seems they all every person we talk about is discredited. It's just how does this one even have any relevance at all? when there's everybody there says he's a you know he's a liar. I
5: mean, there wasn't even there wasn't even any, any any history there. I mean, there were other people that he didn't know, like Bruce Rowland and with Bill Gaddis. There was just like the first time he saw him was when he walked into court. Right. I think uh, Titzel said, "Who who is that?" And Jamie said, "I don't know." I, I mean, you know, it was just never never even saw him.
1: It's just it's interesting cool. that he was even able to testify and that it's even part of this case.
5: He shouldn't have been in there because it was, it was just shaky anyways, right? Because he's saying it's a confession of omission.
6: You yeah, know? and he didn't make it into Susan's trial, so he made it into Jamie's trial. So it's like, did Steve Skelton scare them off into not bringing that kind of stuff in to his courtroom? And then now they get away with it with Pitzel?
5: I don't know. They, they just, I, it just amazes me the great lengths that they went to. I mean, they they flew to Michigan. Tina Griffin, the assistant states attorney, was at that, at that interview at the truck stop with Angie and Bill. They flew to Michigan to get this, you
6: know. Eight days before the grand jury, they're all in Michigan r- rounding story, them up.
5: Ridiculous story of someone who didn't even know him. That, that's just great lengths, and it really makes you wonder why. Right. I mean, why were they going through such great lengths that their if their case
6: was so strong? You know well, what
1: they got out of it was incredibly weak in the process.
6: Weak. Exactly, very weak. The other thing is, when Gaddis is on the stand for the grand jury, um, he's saying that he didn't tell anybody before because he thought that someone else already came forward for the reward money. He tries to say his brother told him that Denny tried to get the reward money, so he just assumed Denny had already said it, so he wasn't responsible for it anymore. And then he goes, I'm just so surprised that so many witnesses in this case, he wasn't taken in already, so I had to do something about it. That's why I'm here today. (laughs) So it's like even he can see, you know, while he's lying and telling his story that there's so many witnesses supposedly and nothing has happened. So where's the evidence?
5: And at the end of his at the end of his tape, you'll notice he says something at the end. You know, after they're wrapping everything up and the tape is ending and he goes, oh, I've just got to tell you this. I just want it to be on the record that the reason I didn't come forward before was because I thought everybody else you know, I thought I thought somebody else told this story. That's why you did it. Because you thought somebody told you you thought somebody told the story before and that's why you never said anything. He never said anything about that in his testimony. Right. To me, he just sounds so he's trying to sound like this solemn person who's trying to do the, the right thing and is just torn up about doing the right thing, you know because he doesn't want to be involved in this so he you know he has this tone that is to me just smacks of insincerity
6: yeah i noticed that too immediately he was definitely like hamming it up and he was very narcissistic and you know it sounded like he was on dr phil or something and
1: (laughs) he's enjoying the attention
6: yeah that's why he's an ass-kicking preacher
5: it's the like Superman. that person it's like, you know, if somebody my neighbor dies, it's like the person who you just can't wait to tell everybody. Right. You know. <laughs> but is gonna be really sad about it, you know. Once but wants to be the one. It's just
1: insane. Makes sense. I think that sums up this guy completely. There isn't anything left to say. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated.
6: In episode 16, a reverend on the run found his way into Jamie's case just eight days before grand jury proceedings. Bill Gaddis said that just six months after he denounced his gang membership, he walked into a room full of members while looking for his brother, heard an accusation against Jamie, and noticed Jamie didn't respond. He said he left in disgust and that they let him leave with such sensitive information because he could whoop them all. He testified to that, but his brother testified he was a known liar in their family, that it did not happen. The judge did not allow his brother to give detailed information about the family history so the jury could put it into perspective. But he just came forward in this episode and exposed the explicit atrocities his reverend brother was actually running from, and detailed the hefty payment he was offered to testify against Jamie Snow. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. This wasn't the only seemingly reputable person who tried to use Jamie's case to help ease the consequences for their own indiscretions. Corrections officer Mary Burns was in the hot seat when she suddenly remembered hearing something from Jamie years before too. How did Mary Burns get away with it? That's next time on Snow Files.